Philippians 1, we're going to look at verses 3 uh, to 8 this morning. 3 to 11, I'm sorry. It should be 3 to 11. It says this, God's word says this, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you and all of, with all the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Hear this, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. I feel like we should be saying amen after that. I have two kids, a daughter who's 17, a son who's 14. I coached my kids' youth sports teams, uh, baseball, softball, and soccer for a number of years when they were younger. And uh, in coaching, there, there are players you connect with, and, and then there's some, if I'm honest, that you just kind of learn to tolerate. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but on my son's team, obviously, I was fond of my own kid. Uh, loved him. We had some good battles out there while I was coaching him. Uh, for the dad coaches in the room, you understand what I'm talking about. But in, on, say, in a soccer team in particular, I was able to keep uh, another two kids. So I could take my own kid. I wasn't allowed to draft him off onto another team and coach other kids, but had my son. And then I was able to keep two other boys on my team year over year as I coached as he moved up through the different age groups. Uh, aside from wanting players that could perform, obviously you wanted good athletic players on your team, guys, the kids that were consistent would come and participate that had good attitudes that were coachable. Uh, besides all those things, you, there were some boys that you just grew a genuine connection with. I had a few boys that I just was really connected with. It was a type of connection when you'd be shopping in the store, you'd see kind of the normal kid that you'd coach and be like, Hey, Hey coach, how you doing? But these kids, when you'd see them, I mean, they'd run up and grab you and, and hold on to you and you know, how are you doing, coach? You just got that warm embrace, warm feeling from them. I loved these particular boys uh, with a joy and affection that went uh, deeper than just kind of normal coach and athlete. I would text with their parents in the off season. Hey, how, how's Gilbert doing? Or how's Hunter doing? How's, how's the boys doing? Are they doing all right in school? So there was just a, a deeper, richer relationship with these boys than some of the other kids on the rest of the team. Uh, dare I say it, that they were my, they were my favorites. I'll just be honest. They were, they were my favorite kids on the team. They brought joy, laughter, and incredible love for the game that made coaching so rewarding. And I was reminded of this as I'm reading Paul's letter here to the Philippian church. We can tell from the language of Paul that he has a, a particularly deep affection for this church. Uh, dare I say, it seems to be his favorite. You know, you see the language in some of the other uh, churches that he writes to, Corinthians and stuff like that. You can see that they may grind on his nerves a little bit, but he loves this particular church. Uh, and we see his deep love and affection kind of in, in the words that he uses throughout, uh, at least in this opening prayer. We see the joy and the affection that he has for them. He holds this church church, it says, in his heart. Uh, this, is the, this opening prayer is this. It's a pastor's plea. 
It's a pastor's plea for the local church. It's a simple invitation to the local church to carry out a simple strategy for spiritual growth. And we see some of that emerging here in this opening prayer. Uh, And that's this, that they would be joined together so they would be connected, that they would be growing spiritually so they would grow, and that they would love and serve one another, that they would serve so they would connect, grow, and serve. What I like to do when we preach through a passage is to just kind of give a one-sentence main idea. So this is the main idea that we have uh, for this prayer that we're examining this morning. Paul's expansive prayer for his gospel partners conveys the need for spiritual growth through knowledge and service. Paul's expansive prayer for his gospel partners conveys the need for spiritual growth through knowledge and service. Philippians 1, we're going to look at verses 3 to 6 now. It says, I thank my God. Hear, hear this kind of, when I say expansive, it's, it's far reaching. It's, it's a sweeping prayer. I thank my God, hear this, in all my remembrance of you. Then he says this, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. We see the love that Paul has for this church because of your partnership in what? In the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this. We love this verse, don't we? I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, that God is indeed going to complete his work when Christ returns. We believe Jesus is coming back. Amen, church? Within this sweeping prayer, the point becomes evident that we are partners in the gospel, okay? And as partners, we desire for one another to continue in the good work that God has started, growing in connection to one another, love and service to one another, until the time at which God brings it to completion. Again, Christ has inaugurated the work. He has started it, but he is completing it when he returns. All things will be made new. This prayer has an eye this way. We kind of have Paul with, with one foot in the now and then an eye towards eternity. One foot solidly in the present and then also looking into eternity in that statement. He who began a good work in you, so right now, will bring it to completion. Looking to eternity, uh, the finished work of Christ that's going to be completed when he comes back. Paul longs for the completion of God's work, and yet uh, later in this letter, uh, he will explain that there's still labor to be done. There's work to be done. We'll get to that a little bit later in the sermon. First off, I want to give you a little bit of context, though. I want to give you some historical context because I think there's some lessons just to be drawn in the place that uh, Paul is at at this point in his life. Paul's pastoral plea doesn't come when he's off cozy and comfortable in retirement on the Mediterranean Sea, sipping on coffee and uh, watching the waves crash ashore. Paul, in fact, in this section where he's writing this from, do you know where he's at? He's in prison. And he's not in prison because... Uh, he stole something or, or, you know, slandered somebody or extorted money or is involved in the mafia or something like that. He's in prison because he's doing the work of Christ. He's proclaiming the gospel and he keeps getting locked up for that purpose. 
And so Paul's in prison. Now, many of us would be like a woe is me attitude at that point, right? God, I'm working for you and I'm in chains now. Like, are you kidding me? Shouldn't my life go better if I'm obeying you? Shouldn't my physical life be great and prosperous? But here, Paul, the greatest missionary that's ever lived, is in chains because of his proclaiming of the gospel. And so we can, family, learn from this point alone. We see joy in this letter when Paul is literally shackled to a wall, okay? And we're not talking about prison like we know it, you know, three hots and a, and a cot, right? We got, he's shackled up. He better hope someone brings him food. The jailers are not nice, and I'm sure the shackles are rusty and extra tight and very uncomfortable, Likely he had his hands kind of bound over the top of his head. Can you imagine for days on end just having your your hands above your head like that? He was uncomfortable. And yet this joy-filled letter comes out of that. We call this a friendship letter. Philippians is a friendship letter of Paul to this church that he loves so much. And so we're going to look at three truths this morning that we're going to draw out of this pastor's plea, this pastor's prayer. Uh, That is... Uh, truths that we can apply here to our local church. We are, number one, connecting through the gospel. Connecting through the gospel. The gospel is family central to all we say and do here at North Bullet Christian Church. And it's the sure foundation of our spiritual growth as a local church body. Oftentimes we either begin our sermon with the gospel or we end with the gospel. The gospel is going to be in every sermon that is preached here from this pulpit while I stand here. Philippians 1, 7-8 says this, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all, hear this, partakers with me of grace. What does that mean? Partakers of me of the gospel, both in my imprisonment and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. We see the gospel connection here between Paul and this church. The opening section highlights the work of Jesus in their connection. Jesus' work is central to how this church has been joined together and brought together and connected with Paul, who's not there with them physically, but is apart from them in prison, in chains. This connection isn't a familial blood. It's not blood family, right? Or some sort of business partnership where he's making money off them. Rather, it is a connection or partnership on behalf of the gospel, on behalf of the good news about Jesus and what he has done and through the power of the gospel. The gospel is powerful. It draws very different people together and connects them together. I want you to notice a word here. There's there's an incredible word that Paul uses throughout this letter. We're going to learn a Greek word this morning. You guys ready? Everybody with, no one's ready? I don't know. Everybody say with me, koinonia, say that. Okay, means close relationship with others. And we see this in the word partners and partakers. It's this deep connection that Paul has with this church and the church has with each other. And if we were to preach on through Philippians, we would find out at the end of the letter that this isn't a church that's got everything together. They're pretty messy. They're a bunch of messed up people in a messed up church, but you know what? Jesus loves them and he's connected them together through his gospel and his power. They're partners. The koinonia or partnership is drawn from a mutual connection to the gospel. 
Paul refers to the gospel and their partnership some four times in this prayer alone. He's showing us the importance of Christ's work in our partnership together in ministry. I think Paul has a deep affection for this fellowship because it's absolutely incredible how these people came together. In Acts 16, it details how this church was brought together. A bunch of different people from different walks of life coming together to establish this church. Back in Acts 16, Paul and his, and his ministry partner Silas arrive in Philippi. They're at a place of prayer along the riverside. You see, uh, Paul's typical approach to proclaiming the gospel is that he would find a synagogue so that he could proclaim the gospel to the Jews first, and then they would get angry and upset at him, and they'd start stoning him, and he'd go outside of the city, and he'd start proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles. That was his kind of normal track record going through the city. But here, there wasn't a synagogue, but there was people of faith that had gathered along the riverside, and so Paul and Silas went down to the riverside, and they began proclaiming the gospel. And there was a woman there, and she hears the word of the Lord. In Acts 16, it says the Lord does this work. The Lord opens her heart to what Paul is saying, and she places her faith in Jesus. This woman in this particular passage is is noted as selling purple goods. We can draw the logical conclusion that she was probably a pretty wealthy woman because purple was incredibly expensive at this time. So she's selling this purple uh, fabric uh, to people, and she's probably making a good living. Her name was Lydia. She offers her home to Paul and Silas. Acts 16 tells us as they were going to a place of prayer. So let me pause there for a second. So we have a rich woman first that's reconciled to Christ because Paul and Silas were faithful to proclaim the gospel. So we have Lydia, kind of categorize her here, hold Lydia in your head. Now, Acts 16 also notes that as they were going to a place of prayer, they encounter a poor slave girl who kept pestering Paul and Silas. The language there is kind of funny because they're almost annoyed with her a little bit. Maybe not a little bit, maybe a lot of bit. It says that this, this slave girl had a, it says a spirit of divination. In other words, she was a fortune teller. That's how her slave owners made money off of her. Just, she's pestering Paul and Silas because she has this spiritual discernment. There's actually a spiritual darkness within her, and she, she sees kind of this oppositional force. And so Paul turns and rebukes her and casts this spirit out. Well, obviously her handlers, her slave owners, are upset now because that's their source of income. But now I believe we have now this, this poor slave girl who was basically under, under the pressure and... and was overcome by dark, evil spirits. They're cast out. I believe she came to Christ there. So we have a rich lady, Lydia. Now we have a poor slave girl that's brought in. So we have two people here, uh, very different backgrounds, right? So the owners aren't real happy with Paul and Silas. And so Paul and Silas are arrested on account of delivering this girl from the evil spirit. means they're imprisoned. While they're in prison... They start singing hymns, it says, and praying. I mean, this section of Scripture convicts me because I don't know if I would be singing hymns and praying. Like, if I'm up here preaching the gospel and the police came in right now and they arrested me for doing this, I probably, as I got to jail, would be saying, why, God, why did you do this to me? 
But Paul and Silas, in being faithful to the call of Christ, are arrested for that call. And what do they do? They sing. And they pray. And the Scriptures tell us that this happened in Acts chapter 16, that a great earthquake shook and the doors were opened. Okay, now they were under the watchful eye of a jailer. We know historically the jailers were usually kind of retired military guys, so they were a little gruff, uh, rough around the edges. This was probably a hardened man that was in there with them. Okay, what am I saying? He wasn't a nice guy. He was a tough dude. He realizes he had fallen asleep. He, uh, he awakes with the earthquake, sees that the doors are open, and instead of having to face uh, the Romans in certain death, he turns the sword on himself and is getting ready to take his own life. And Paul saves this man by saying basically, hey, don't do that, we're still here. They hadn't fled. See, they had the opportunity when the, when the doors opened, they could have ran out and left. But they didn't. They stayed. Paul saves this man's life, and his response is, what must I do to be saved? To which Paul shares the gospel with this man. And guess what? Scripture tells us that not only he was saved, but his whole family was saved. They went back to his house. They baptized the whole family. It's amazing. So let's get the picture here. Rich businesswoman, poor slave girl, Gruff, working guy. Sounds like an excellent strategy for church planning, doesn't it? But the seed of the church is planted there with these three individuals. The the Philippian church begins with these three people. How can that happen? Because the gospel connects people that don't really belong together, doesn't it? Connected through the gospel. That's why, Paul would say, that's why Paul would say in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power to save first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Because he's seen it firsthand. Romans was, was written way later in his life. He's seen the power of the gospel to bring a rich woman and a poor slave girl and a gruff jailer guy all together to start a church. He's seen the miracle of salvation. You've seen the work of the gospel on hardened hearts. The gospel is the central reason we gather and connect together. Jesus is, in a sense, family this. He's the glue that binds us and holds us. This bond that we share is found when we are connected together. Christianity is not an individualistic belief. It is a community coming together for the glory of Christ. And the primary means of connection or partnership, as we see in this passage, is this. It's the weekly gathering of believers to worship King Jesus and to hear from his word. People say, how come God doesn't speak like he used to in the Old Testament or the New Testament? You want to know, he speaks each and every week from pulpits all around the world through the power of his word. And it's why when I, when I go backstage, I fall on my face on those stairs back there and say, God, I'm not worthy to do what you have called me to do, but please, by the power of your spirit, just say something through my incoherent words that I'm going to be muttering for the next 45 minutes. Please, God, do something with these. Show up. Next, number two, we see this. We see this within Paul's pastoral plea 
is a desire that, that this church will be growing with knowledge and discernment, he says. That they will be growing with knowledge and discernment. We believe, yes, the gospel is the power of God to save. The finished work of Christ keeps us and holds us. It's the reason Paul can proclaim just as he did, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. The scripture does not lie. That's what Jesus has accomplished for us. And we are also doing this. We are to be growing in knowledge and discernment together under the power of the gospel and in partnership with one another. This is the importance of the fellowship and partnership of Christians. That we're partakers of the grace of God together, growing in knowledge and discernment of His Word and the application of that Word in everyday life. In other words, that we're changed by it and we act differently. Paul says this, it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be, hear this, this is the result, so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That we're ready when Jesus returns. And this is to be done together. Paul's prayer is indeed, it's expansive and vast and wide and it's long-searching, but also goes deep into the hearts of the Philippian church. Paul's pastoral plea is that they would not just maintain some sort of surface-level connection, but would grow in knowledge and discernment together. They would sharpen each other. They would stir one another up. That they would, they would come to learn more and more, not that they would be puffed up with this knowledge, but that so love would abound. And so that when the Lord returns, or when we meet Him face to face, that He would find us blameless. It's not an individualistic faith. And we have, I believe in the church in America, we've made it all about ourselves. We must flee from that. Let us be connected and growing together as the family of God. We are called the body of Christ. We are a living thing, and and living things grow. We grow spiritually. My heart's desire for this church is that you would fall in love with Jesus, and the results of that would be transformed living. The author of Hebrews says this, Chapter 10, verses 23 to 25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Again, the idea of the day drawing near is that Christ is coming back. All the more we should be connecting together, it says. Stirring up one another, what? To love and good works. This word grouping to stir up one another shows the importance of connection and growth in the local church. Family, we have to grow. We have to continue to grow. We can't become stagnant. Like when I used to do the dishes when I was a kid, my mom would always remind me to wring out the sponge. Because if you left that thing filled up with water, 
and you set it there and you came back a couple days later, it had some stank on it, didn't it? It got sour and nasty. That's the purpose of this gathering. We'd come in, we get filled up, and then we go out and we just wring the sponge out. And we're basically, you know, crawling back in here. Jesus, give me some more. We're filled back up again. And then we go out and we're wrung out again. But what happens when the water just sits in us and we do nothing with it? Bible has a lot to say about idleness. Stir up one another. Lastly, number three, Paul conveys the fruit of this love, connection, and growth. Serving. We see serving. Serving is a fruit of righteousness. Paul talks about being filled with the fruit of righteousness at the end of this prayer. In a sense, the fruit of connection and growth is service. When we speak of fruit, we use that word a lot. When we speak of fruit, when you think about a fruit tree, the purpose of a fruit tree is that it would grow and do what? Bear fruit. It would produce something, right? And fruit is something you can see, you can touch, feel, you can taste it. There's tangible results. The fruit means there's, there's tangible evidence, there's receipts in a sense of what has happened within us. It's the inward coming out and making itself known. See the tangible results of our faith in Jesus, the transformation that has taken place because of this. It's not because we have a faith that we pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's the indwelling spirit that's transforming us from the inside out. And that transformation is made known through our love and service of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this fruit will, will manifest itself in acts of service, which is a fruit of righteousness. I'm going to combine verse 9. Paul kind of inserts in his prayer. Uh, he goes off on a tangent a little bit. So I'm going to connect verse 9 to verse 11. He says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The the fruit of righteousness is not for our glory. It's not for us to get a pat on the back. It's for God to get all the glory and praise and honor. The power and importance of our partnership together is that we would learn to serve and love one another. It's central to the body of Christ. In this, the, the fruit of righteousness is apparent. Transformation is made evident through the way that we act out our faith. It's not hidden away, but known to others. And so my pastoral plea is that we would seek out ways uh, God's Holy Spirit has equipped you with gifts to serve the body of Christ. That we would seek out uh, the ways in which God's Holy Spirit has equipped us to serve and to love one another. And that we wouldn't just have a knowledge of what these gifts are, but that we would actually use them. We would actually use the gifts that God has given us in order that we might do this, that we might build one another up. That we might build one another up. Paul later in this letter, it's really an amazing section of this letter. He wrestles with the reality of his, his, his physical chains, the work that has to be done on earth, and, and, and then the reality that his, his frail, beaten body and soul is just worn down. He's tired. 
We see this tension where he longs to be with Jesus in heaven, but realizes there's work to be done and service to be given, letters to be written, the gospel to be proclaimed. He says this in Philippians 1, 20 to 26. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with, that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You know this verse, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. You hear the wrestling here? My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul's saying, man, I'm stuck in this tension. I want to be with Jesus. I want to go to heaven, but I have work to do. So God, whatever your will is, I'm walking in that. I just want to honor you, Jesus. Paul's working through his labor for the Lord and the reality that he also wants to be home with the king who has loved him and for whom he has served. And family, this is the heart of the church. That we would be emptied out, that we would pour ourselves out one to another. We would be emptied to the point of Paul's pleading being hard-pressed to continue on, but knowing there is a fruitful labor to be accomplished for the glory of God. And in reality, this is what makes the church antithetical to the world system because the world wants you to be comfortable and to elevate yourself. The gospel uh, minimizes us, calls us to pour ourselves out for the glory of God. stands in opposition to the world system and the schemes of Satan. Because the reality is, this, this is what makes the gospel kind of scandalous. It's not about us. And we want to make it all about us. It's not about us. It's about Jesus first. And it's about serving and loving those that God has entrusted to us. It's about pointing people to the light of the world which is Jesus Christ. It's about the church being this, being that shining beacon of light through the upside-down nature of the body of Christ. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5, 14 to 16. These are the things that he said about followers of him. He says, you are the light of the world. He gives us a picture of the light. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Right? If you are out in the pitch black and there's a hill off in the distance and you see this, this city miles and miles away, you can see the light shining. It's a picture that Jesus gives for his bride, for the church, that we would be a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. He says, nor do people light a lamp and put, a, put it under a basket. They don't hide it. But on a stand right above but it gives light to all in the house. He says this, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Hear this again, talking about service, so that they may see what? Your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How incredibly, family, 
bright will our light shine if we embrace simple steps towards spiritual growth. That we would do this, that we would connect together, that we would grow in knowledge and discernment, that we would serve and love one another and the onlooking world. The world is looking. Will we be the light of Christ? Or will we put that lamp underneath the basket and hide it away? And here's the truth. This is all because of Jesus circling this back around to the gospel. Think about the person that's writing this letter. Think about where he was at before he was in chains. Look at Paul's life. And we see an incredible light for Christ in his life because of his radical transformation. You may be sitting in here this morning and you say, God could never forgive me of this sin. Just listen to Paul's life for a second. And you tell me if God's grace is sufficient for you or not. It's only the work of Christ that would transform a zealous religious man like Paul. It's only the work and power of of Jesus that would cleanse Paul of this, of his sin of murder and self-righteousness, and ultimately the greater sin, his, his unbelief in Jesus. The word was spreading all throughout the empire that this guy had raised from the dead. And yet Paul's going out and murdering his followers. He held the coats of the, of the, the men who stoned Stephen. Tell me you can't be forgiven of your sin. This man, Paul, who at, who at one time breathed out wrath and fury against the bride of Christ, the church, was so radically transformed and cleansed by the work of Christ that he was then willing to do this, to, to travel and proclaim this good news to everybody he came in contact with. He's down by the riverside talking about Jesus while people are praying. He's rebuking spirits out of slave girls. He sat in the jail cell and waited for that jailer to get up so that he could share about his Savior that saved him radically. Paul was willing to be imprisoned over and over and over again for the work of the kingdom of God. And ultimately, we know this from church history, that he was martyred. We really don't know where he went. He just was gone. Died for Jesus. Don't sit here this morning and think that Christ cannot cover your sin. His grace is sufficient for you. This is the transformative power of the gospel. And this power is it's, it's made known through the local church. It's the importance of the body of Christ that we are gospel proclaimers, that we make Jesus famous. We diminish into the background and God's glory is proclaimed as we do this, as we connect and we grow and we serve one another as the Lord's shining city on a hill pointing our community to the saving message of Jesus Christ.